Welcome to Robot Friends, a podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 6, Eigenrobot vs. Yashkov. Hi all, I'm here with Jacob Velkovich, who is Yashkov on Twitter. Um, Jeez, how to introduce you. I should have probably thought to ask you that. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Well, I guess if people who are listening to it are going to know me from Twitter. Um, everybody on Twitter treats me as the polyamory guy, even though I don't write a lot about polyamory. I'm trying to basically uh, protect the turf of rationality and less wrong, which is kind of underrepresented on Twitter because Twitter by its discourse isn't very suited to personality. <laughs> Uh, and then I write a blog, put a name on it, which is really where people should go to read my more serious stuff. Um, and of course, that has nothing to do with like my actual life, which is working a boring finance tech job and living in Brooklyn and playing soccer and all the stuff that really has nothing to do with polyamory or predictive processing or rationality at all. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Yeah. And put put a name on it is fantastic. I mean, the the post that's been on my mind the most and maybe your most influential post was the the one that you did early, uh, I think in February, 2020, maybe almost a year ago now, I guess, about how it's okay to just let yourself freak out a little bit about COVID and, and give yourself permission to make decisions that maybe seem a little bit, I don't know, extreme. Does that sound like a good characterization? Yeah, well, basically my point with that post was... COVID is a physical thing. There's an actual virus. It has like a microbiology of how it infects the cells in your throat. It has an epidemiology of like exponential growth curves. And nobody's treating it that way. Everybody's treating it as like a fashion thing. Everybody's just looking around and seeing, is it cool already to be worried about it or not? And this is, I think, one of the clear benefits of rationality is you learn to notice things. When instead of looking at the object level of something, people just ask, like instead of asking, is this true or false? Everybody mostly asks, is this weird or acceptable? And it's applied to everything. Yeah. Once in a while, it's an actual high stakes thing, like whether you should prepare for COVID or not. And my post was, hey, you should use the lens other than whether it's weird or fashionable. Like actually looking at the virus. Yeah. Okay. So do you, this, I, I think... One of the one of the main things that I wanted to talk to you about is what you see the the ongoing role of of rationalism to be. I think that you know it's it's been a movement that's been around for a while. My my impression of it is that it maybe really got started with Eliezer and Robin blogging together at um, was it overcoming bias? It was overcoming bias. I think in the mid aughts, and and it sort of grew out of that. Does that sound correct to you? Yeah, so it's funny. I only joined Rationality really in 2014. So most of what I know about the old history is from Mining Less Wrong and from Tom Chivers or Chivers's book, uh, The AI Doesn't Hate You. So it's basically a British journalist who just got curious about the weird nerds who are obsessed with AI and then came to Berkeley and talked to all of them and basically wrote a history and an explainer. So yeah, I think Eliezer and Robin met in like some transhumanist IRC chats or mailing groups mm-hmm. uh, in the early aughts and then started writing Overcoming Bias. And then, I mean, that town wasn't big enough for both of them. <laughs> Eliezer had to have yeah. his own thing. 
and then Lestrong was born. And since then, it's probably gone through a few eras. Uh, yeah, which which are those? I'm I'm actually interested in these sorts of oral histories of internet. I guess subcultures I, is probably the best word. Right. So my sense is, kind of started in 2007. Eliezer was writing the sequences. It was basically publishing a blog post every day, uh, kind of laying out the art of rationality, like with a capital R, like our brand of less strong rationality. Um, that then became the sequences, and. I think like quite like pretty early on, it gathered a community of people who were really into it, uh, and there were a ton of comments and people were really excited about those ideas. Um, some of them, I guess, kind of had to happen only now because a lot of it was based on things like Kahneman and Tversky's research and biases, which now I think is like not really a big or important thing, but at the yeah. time it introduced people to the idea, um, and. It was driven by Eliezer's realization in the mid-2000s that, oh, shit, like AI is a problem. AI by default will not be aligned with human values. Any divergence from our goals will fuck us up. And nobody else seems to like understand the problem. So I think the early phase was like 2007 through maybe 2010. Uh, everything just happened on Less Wrong. A new sequence post every day. People getting excited. All the original weirdos coming in. Yeah. Um, then in like the early part of this decade, some of the organizations started forming. So first it was Singularity Research Institute and then MIRI. They did their own thing. I think CIFAR started in 2012, just in focusing on basically teaching rationality to people. Mm -hmm. um, and then Lestrong itself kind of started dwindling. So a bunch of noobs came in, some of the previous posters stopped posting, everybody kind of split off to their own blogs. Uh, yeah. Spacer Codex. So Scott had a previous blog, but I think he kind of relaunched with a much bigger audience in 2013 as Codex. Mm -hmm. So then it was like, okay, you have the organizations, you have the blogs, everybody's kind of doing their own thing. And I think that was also when people started gathering in Berkeley. Oh, is it that late? I, I hadn't realized. I For some reason, I thought it was a much earlier development. Was that was that a response to just those foundations forming up in Berkeley? and Yeah, I think it kind of started around CIFAR and MIRI. Um, and I don't know if just Eliezer happened to be living there, so people came. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess, so I went to a CIFAR workshop in 2016 in New York. And it's funny, CIFAR is like trying to measure the impact on people. Like, are they happier? Are they more productive? Um, like, a lot of those things are kind of hard to measure. The only very yeah. clear effect is people moving to the Bay. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty strong revealed preference. <laughs> like, two weeks after our workshop, I hosted kind of meet up at my apartment there were like 18 people and then i wanted to do a reunion one year later and 10 of them lived in the bay of the nice. 80 new yorkers who went to this workshop wow that's my main beef with mainstream rationality i just just don't like the bay <laughs> yeah okay that's okay so that's interesting so you, you mentioned mainstream rationality so i mean we have these like large organizations or large being maybe a relative term but these um these sort of formal organizations that cropped up in the Bay Area in the early teens. And I guess, would would you characterize those as being sort of like the mainstream as it exists today? And it, it sounds like you don't identify with that. Well, first of all, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I go to every C4 alumni meetup and I really like that. Um, as for Miri, I mean, I raise some money for them. Um, 
I thought they were doing good work, and I'm just not sure because I haven't been following. Um, mm-hmm. But also, Les Strong is back, which is kind of not really affiliated with them. So the site itself um, has kind of been revived with some money donated by people and a small team. People yeah. like Ben Pace and Ray Arnold and Oliver Habrica. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've just revived the site itself as a hub. So basically, like, every day you can go under and read like really smart writing or just like absolute mad genius chat shit. Like the highest karma post this month was a guy making vaccine at home from just oh, like peptides he ordered from some company that synthesizes them on the internet. Oh, that owns. Okay. I'm really, and how that's really interesting. How easy is it to do that? I, I you bet I could do in? that at home. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I don't know. I might go check that out. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, deeply interested in that so so yeah i think it's not hard but it's very difficult to tell whether whatever this thing you're praying up you're spraying up your nose will actually protect you from covid yeah i think the evidence for that is not that strong um i don't know yeah constantine is skeptical and she's like my go-to person for (laughs) those questions yeah, that's fair. I mean, I guess delivery makes a big difference. I, you know, I messed around in a biochem lab for a while as an undergrad, but I don't actually believe that I have any any sufficient amount of expertise to, uh, you know, execute on something like that in practice. And, you know, there, I think I I have a lot of objections to the way that, you know, the FDA held up vaccine rollout, but at the same time, you know, if I were to make something at home, do I have any, you know, what what kind of belief do I have about the, the likelihood that it would work. Uh, maybe I'm just going to wait for a real vaccine and play it safe until then. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably going to get the real vaccine too. I just, uh, just look very proud of Less Wrong. That's just a ballsy thing to do. Yeah. And the fact that it's promoted by the community and people like upvoting it and posting their own feedback and like looking into the actual research. And it's beautiful. I'm, I'm really enjoying Less Wrong. I'm really glad that it's back. Yeah. So and it's not particularly affiliated with the organizations now. I mean, Eliezer doesn't post a lot unless wrong. Uh, like Cipher people post occasionally, but so that's, so more that's yeah. So that that's super interesting to me. One one thing that I've been curious about is the way that again, I, I guess I would call it a scene. You know, like you can use words like subculture or movement or whatever, but I think scene which is lifted from, from say music gets at maybe more the energy that, that tends to animate social groups like this. And one thing that's been interesting for me to think about as I've gotten older and, and as I'm thinking about, you know, my daughter who could be born any minute. Yeah. I was going to ask how many people are in the moon robot. We can talk about that also. So my wife and I, we might be on like the other side of the process. We're just like starting to try. Yeah. Yeah. And already like, crazy thing (laughs) it's 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 wild yeah i highly encourage it um we should we should definitely loop back to that but the the thing yeah one one thing that i've been thinking about is sort of the not even like a strict intergenerational transmission of you know like from from parents to children or that kind of generational gap but just the way that say founding participants 
end up transmitting or, or not transmitting kind of the the culture on to to new entrants and and how how a scene changes over time in response to that. And I've been curious, I mean, since rationality is has been around for say maybe 15 years, depending on how you slice it at this point, what what that has looked like and maybe where it succeeded and what some failure modes are. Um succeeded as a scene. Um so first of all it's kind of a strange scene. Like I think that post-rationality is really a scene. Like the people on Twitter and robots friends, that's almost a pure scene, right? You're not like not doing anything together. Uh, there's no particular barrier to entry. It's just people who hang out with each other and have mm-hmm. some memes in common. Now with rationality, it's always been somewhat strange. And again, Ray Arnold wrote a good post about it called the village and the mission. Mm-hmm. So you have some people in rationality because of the mission like they are going to save the world with other people in a small organization. They're going to like dedicate all their effort to it. And they really kind of care about that more than anything. But then also, especially in Berkeley, you have a lot of people who showed up just because, oh, it's like a big nerdy community. It's like a very accepting of weirdos of all stripes. Mm-hmm. Almost like no matter what flavor of weirdo you are, you can get in and they like don't really care about which paradigm of AI research has like more promise. They just care about like, I don't know, who can we hang out with uh, and more yeah. about social stuff. So, I mean, there are like kind of obvious pitfalls to having a scene just around an acceptance of weirdos. So I think yeah. where the community is strongest is that it really has a norm that at least like in our New York meetup, which is like open to everyone. Um, and with normally when we had like weekly in-person meetup, we'd had like 20, 30 people show up with at least like five, six first timers every time. So mm-hmm. quite a big churn. And the general norms of just rationality epistemics. So like you actually like don't lie. You actually talk about the object level things. Um or like it's okay to go meta and talk directly about what's happening. Yeah. Like if someone's I don't know using some appeal to authority or pulling the status move, it's like not weird to say, "Hmm, I feel like you're pulling an appeal to authority as a status move." Uh-huh. <laughs> what prediction can you actually make to see if you're correct or not other than you talk to this person and he's important? Mhm. Mhm. Um so hey this kind of it itself creates a big barrier to entry because it's a social game with very different rules. Yeah. So think of someone like Scott Alexander. He can could not be popular in any other situation. He's not like a very sociable guy. He's not like, you know, captivating in person or charismatic or like super rich. But then like to rationalist, he is like the king because he just writes smart stuff and people read it. And then he like yeah. talks quietly and thoughtfully with a lot of caveats and says smart things. And in our strange community, this gives you a lot of status. And I think it's, you know, I, I think it's even broader than, than rationality. Most of the people that I knew who were identifying as post rats in say 2016 were pretty big Scott fans. And I mean, I mean, I count myself among them for sure. Um, and I think, yeah, that, that is a very effective mode. One interesting thing about Scott is that 
I think some of his best work has been less around making specific predictions about things. Oh, this, this could just be, I mean, bias in my reading of him just because of what I think is interesting at any point in time. And while, while I definitely embrace the prediction paradigm that rationality has brought about, and I use it a lot myself, um, it's not always the most gripping thing to me. What, what I think Scott's often done pretty effectively is just very careful framing of ideas. And I'm grateful that he's done that, but I don't, now that, now that you're listing these things out, it doesn't necessarily strike me as something that is uniquely rationalist. Does, does that make sense? It, yeah, right. So the Scott, he explains things. Actually, I had a summary I was just discussing with someone of just the things that Scott explained in 2014 alone. And it was like everything from why science is broken to toxoplasma, in-group, out-group, whale cancer, how fashions work. Um, yeah, so that's not like strictly rationality and making predictions, but okay, so I, I had a post about kind of called the path to rationality, where I was actually kind of explaining why most people will not become rationalists. And it like doesn't make sense to think that we're going to like spread this art to every corner of the planet. Yeah. Uh, and part of it is because it's almost, it's really a dojo for practicing the skill or just like using your system tool reason and like trying to think things through on an object level instead of relying on like a vibe or tradition or what people around you are doing or what feels right, etc. And it's not to say that this is always the correct answer to a lot of things. And I think it's fair to say that, yeah, there are people who get too excited about rationality and they should really just take some mushrooms and vibe or whatever. <laughs> I uh, would never, I would say that, but, but <laughs> that would be rude. Yes. Um, but like there is a useful place for it. And like, you can almost kind of using your system too, and like using explicit reason to figure things out is so rare in the world. Like people don't even do it when there's a play coming. Um, yeah, you kind of need this special like autistic dojo <laughs> just to like practice it, and then like you get a bit older, you like spend a few years there. Maybe you like hit your early thirties, and you've got enough practice. You know where you can where and like for what things you can trust your explicit reason, and then you can like go out and talk about God and meditation, do drugs, and be a post rat and make fun of like the young people coming behind you. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's easy, right? Like you, you get really comfortable with a set of tools and then you go and pay attention to something else that seems fresher and more interesting to you. But, and, and maybe it's really easy to, you know, as you say, look at people who are 10 years younger than you are, who are getting excited about the things and making the same mistakes that you did 10 years ago, for you know, related to over-enthusiasm and, and poke fun at them. But I, I think it really is a really it's a good skill set for anyone to develop and I mean, pick up and, you know, there's, there's the, the David Chapman Kagan levels. I almost said Kegel that I, I, I think is about right, you know, and, and you can view, I think you could almost view rationalism as one or, or at least like big R rationalism or sequence rationalism as a system to master that in fact has quite a few uses that, you know, there, there are problems that you can solve with that that I think are difficult to solve with other means. Or, you know, if you try to use other means, you're going to get an answer that is more wrong. 
than you might with with rationalism. And so maybe what I'm getting around to saying is that it sounds like you're almost identifying as somebody who has gotten very good at using this tool set and now doesn't use it in this kind of eternalistic sense, but picks it up where it seems to be useful and otherwise, you know, falls back on other other mechanisms for grappling with the world. Yeah, I mean, partly I think there's a lot of things in rationality that are useful as a meta system too. Um, like what like rationality didn't teach me Bayes' law, right? I learned Bayes' law when I was 13 in some like probability textbook. Mm-hmm. Conversion teaches you really more of a systematic thing. I think, okay, where could I be wrong? Um, if this is true, what would I expect to see in the world? Um, things that are basically meta skills. Um, and I don't want to talk too much about Chapman because I haven't read him a lot. Yeah. Some of his discussions with Eliezer recently on Twitter, he said that like, he hasn't read the sequences a lot. So, yeah. It's one of those things that happens a lot on Twitter when somebody says, oh, look, like, rationalists or polyamorists, they're this and that. And then Christian says, okay, who are you talking about, right? Because they can always say, oh, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those, like, dumb, simplistic people, eternalistic, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, but everybody thinks it's about me, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> and then, okay, if you jump in to, like, defend your tribe, people say, look, you should like, develop a thicker skin. This is Twitter. We're just, like, shit posting." Uh-huh. Uh, and then if you don't, then like a year later, people say, well, everybody knows that like rats are autistic nerds who think that you just use base law to decide whether to brush your teeth. And I'm like, okay, good job. <laughs> yeah. So this, I think, yeah, I mean, kind of sliding by Eliezer, who I think is just a guy with a kind of a punchy personality. Um, <laughs> before we started this podcast, for some reason in my notifications, uh, such a one had put up a, a long yud meme like a year ago and and for some reason it was in my mentions again and i was chuckling about that um apropos of nothing so so one thing one thing that i was curious about is you know with respect to some of this maybe less than productive online online back and forth what what has been the effect of sneer club on rationality if you don't mind my asking about that if it's too tiresome we could definitely skip over that but um a good question i don't really know what the effect is so i have a very strange attitude to all of this which is i almost like masochistically enjoy online hate the first time <laughs> i made sneer club i was like so excited and i told everybody <laughs> <and I'm> crazy. <laughs> um and also i interviewed jeffrey miller and like our interview that i transcribed and put on the blog that made sneer club and we both just had fun with it um yeah so I really like don't care <laughs> people sneer at me online. And like I'm not a big star in Sneer Club. Um and in part it also almost makes me happy to see like look, like this is the rationalist hate group. That's, uh-huh. that's what they are. And they look not that impressive, right? It's like a really subreddit with like twenty active posters fucking digging through the comments of Slate Star Codex Reddit to find some anonymous person saying something unwoke. It's like, all right, if this is the worst of our haters, then we're doing fine. Um, yeah, do, do you know anything about their history or where they came from? I mean, it's it's really astonishing to me that people are able to devote that much attention to what they're doing. And it, I mean, it feels a little bit obsessive. I'd, you know, Of course, as I say that, I'm thinking like, all right, well, at the same time, I have a 
real bee in my bonnet about all sorts of groups. And so maybe it's not quite so mad, but I mean, rationalism seems at least to me to be so, I don't want to say anodyne exactly, but fairly unobjectionable. And it's, it's really striking to me that a group that tries to be so measured about so many things gets this amount of devoted hatred. Yeah, well, again, it's kind of like a moderate amount. I mean, there are probably people in rationality who are worried about this and who are like afraid to post things. Scott seems to be pretty sensitive. Yeah. Um, and like even like before the New York Times, he was writing a lot how he gets hate with the Reddit and stuff, and like he's really um, more sensitive to the stuff. He also has like more people around him that he cares to protect. Right? It's not like he's just kind of randomly touchy about the stuff. Um, I think there's a lot about rationality that would piss people off. Um, but for political reasons, like in, in rationality, you would find, right, there's kind of no topic that's off the table. And if you're going to have a discussion about race or gender or anything else, right, if it, even like stuff that you can't say that maybe are, like a new political topic, if you come to a rationalist and say like, hey, what do you think is the chance that like there was enough election fraud to decide the election? Uh-huh. In most places, the answer is either, of course, it was stolen or like you're a horrible racist, and the rationalist would say, ah, maybe like bet 20 to 1 against it. Uh huh. My spread is like 5 at 15. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Market. And it just drives people crazy because they feel like rationalists feel superior to them, but they're also like not clearly put into any bucket. Uh huh. So, like a lot of sneer clubs are trying to prove that, I don't know, like Scott Alexander is a Nazi. Yeah, I just I don't know. I um, I mean one one thing that was really striking to me during the during the the affair of Scott this su- last summer was that I think I I was I definitely felt like very aggressively protective when all of that was happening. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I was pretty publicly fuming about it and what, what was the response like within rationality? I mean, I'm, you know, adjacent and Ayla, Ayla had a thread where she was talking about, I don't know, she made a metaphor about something like, well, if there was some tribe that were, you know, coming over the Hills and trying to kill us, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust rationalists to, you know, do something to prevent that. Was was that your sense? Yeah, I mean, I was when that was happening on the day that kind of the story blew up. I was writing, "Look, guys, it's you know, rediscover some courage here. What the fuck are we afraid of?" It's just and like Kate Metz interviewed me, also mostly just asking me about like COVID. So yeah, that threatening and also like, like we can just not care about the New York Times. Can you though? I mean, I I think I. I think there's an element where there's, and, and this is something that has definitely been considered a lot by post rats, either posting in slacks or in DMS or even on the timeline. An advantage to being illegible is that you don't make yourself a target, or at least it's very hard for someone to hit you. If you know, your beliefs are diffuse or obfuscated. And I, I, I think there probably would have been a fair amount of, sort of lashing back or popular pushback or you know some amount of consequences if rationalism were portrayed in New York Times as a potentially scary 
and underground group with all of these bad things that have happened. And, you know, you can see that for just about any group that's been made popular in the last couple of years, it almost immediately gets sucked into being, a, a you know, more fodder for the culture war. Sure, but also... Okay, so I, I discovered rationality um, once upon a time, kind of after I just came to the US, I think it was like 2013, um, I was reading Slate.com. Um, it was before <laughs> awesome. Slate lost their mind, so in the pre-Trump time. Um, yeah. They had just a pure sneer article about Less Wrong. It was basically like an article, there's like this bunch of, it was after Rocco's Basilisk thing blew up. Yeah. Somebody <laughs> right. covered it and wrote a story like, here's like a bunch of weird nerds who think some AI from the future will come to torture them. Um, so I was just like sitting bored like in class uh, at UNC uh, and I clicked on this article and then I clicked through on Less Wrong and then I started reading the sequences. Then I was like, holy shit, and my life changed because of this pure sneer article. You can Google it. Um, yeah. So I imagine like anything that would be written about rationality, um, like 99 haters would just read the New York Times article, I don't know, mutter something and move on, but also with like 10x outreach. And That's also, true. There was an article about Scott. So this guy, Gideon Lewis Krauss from The New Yorker, basically scooped The New York Times by writing a full explainer of who Scott is, what everything is, plus also about the New York Times drama. Just completely covered everything. And now he's a fan of Slayster Codex. He reads Scott. He even reads me. Um, and so like the article wasn't that horrible. Yeah. Well, and there's that really famous... I mean, Scott Scott made a bet about this, right? I think maybe it was written about in the New York Times article about the the content or the the tone of some book that was maybe being written. Was it about Scott or was it about rationalism more generally? Uh, uh, if you don't remember, anyway, yeah, if you don't remember. The story would have come out in the New York Times. The end result would have been exactly the same now, except maybe Substack would have even offered him more money because he <laughs> would have had like even twice the readership from all the people who would have clicked through the New York Times, read his actual blog, and been like, "Oh my god, this is way better than the New York Times. What am I doing?" Yeah, so that's that's interesting. So, like, do you? I think. It sounds like maybe you don't feel like the culture war is as much of a threat as perhaps a lot of other people do to, I don't know, just just your continued way of life. That might be a bit dramatic, but you sound unconcerned about it. Like maybe any publicity is good publicity. Well, not to the point that I'm unconcerned. I just think that, like, first of all, like, I think being visibly scared of it is just bad. Like, yeah. Putting blood in the water. And... I think it's not hard to reach, to have like a sufficient mass of people in your tribe when you just kind of make each other immune to cancellation. And Scott's basically at that level, right? Like Scott will like never go hungry, no matter like what, who anyone writes about him. Um, and so that's kind of like the upside to being legible and being public is, I mean, I have like my own theories about like who gets canceled, who's really under threat uh-huh so i feel like you can be like a real horrible like straight up real racist who hates people and then like you might get canceled if people find out or if you pretend to be like aligned with the progressive mainstream but like you have a dark secret that someone can uncover like you had this horrible racist tweet then people also smell that because like now you're a hypocrite and that's a great story yeah 
but if you just like make fun of all of this and just like I mean, you have to like check in every other month to like see what's the list of keywords you're not allowed to use. <laughs> yeah, right. Words. Uh-huh. Um, then I think you're probably fine. And just like, if you want to write about the stuff, just like use slightly stranger words. Be like a bit confusing, like a tiny bit Straussian. Um, yeah. To the point where, like the mob is not smart. The mob needs like really simple stories. Now, if you work for a company that especially like a company that's not doing very well, like some media outlet that kind of has too many people, then yeah, you'll get fired over a tweet, but it's not really over a tweet. You're getting fired over the fact that they like are losing money and have too many people. If you have like a real non-bullshit job and you're contributing, especially for like all the companies who aren't like the 10 most famous companies in America, uh-huh. um, then right, you like really don't hear about people being fired other than from like, either institutions that have been fully captured and also are kind of struggling, like academia or media, or like Google, Facebook, right? but even like second-tier tech companies, the ones that like the average idiot on Twitter wouldn't hear about, probably have a lot more freedom. Yeah, that's, I think, I, I think there are exceptions to that. I mean, there were definitely people, I mean, th- there have been absurd cases where like the husband of somebody who is at some pro-Trump rally, something like that, or or wife or or father or child, something something absurd like that. Like they were fired, and I think that I I do agree with you though that there does seem to be some element of just standing steely-eyed and and not acting as if you're a good victim. There's a there I. I I understand that for some megafauna in the tundra, the who who are often predated by wolves, but who themselves are much larger than wolves, will will have like you know say a moose will will be surrounded by a pack that encircles it, and basically if they run they die, and if they just stand there and don't break, eventually they tend to win because the wolves don't actually pursue them until they start running. And, you know, maybe they stand around in a circle and sort of snap at it, but they don't go in for the kill. And the way that the way that the animals inevitably actually die is that wolves will jump up and this is horrible, but tear the perineum and then they bleed out as they're running away. And I think that might be a good metaphor for how to respond to certain kinds of mobs. Like, as you say, people can just sort of smell fear. Yeah, it's a bit, especially like the, you know, the image of just like the most like slowly bleeding out. As it's yeah. running and keeps apologizing for being a moose. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, uh, I've heard in a couple of you recent podcasts. So first of all, also, maybe I'm like more or less affair about this because I feel like my life has been more blessed. So I've heard, I was kind of wanted to talk with you in general, right? I'm like a much more public, kind of like I'm more okay with being open, like having things about me, taking risks. Um, whereas you kind of seem to be much more defensive, you're anonymous, you're like, don't spend money here, beware of scams there. Then like also listen that you said, you know, you faced like you were persecuted for like something you didn't do. And then like you had this lawsuit from somebody that you just like brushed them with your car and they pretended to be injured and stuff like that. So yeah, like there are wolves out there. There are people who will just fuck with you, but then also this like fucking with you is kind of random. Yeah. 
there's like not much you can do to protect yourself from someone suing you when you brush them by a car other than just not driving at all. You want to get somewhere, you got to drive. And then just, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've definitely, yeah. And have friends that will help you. Yeah. Well, the, I, I think that's right. You know, one, and I mean, to be clear, I have not stopped driving. Although I, I do have a more generous insurance policy at this point than I did then, although I was going to do that anyway. Um, and I think that the the first case with that actual prosecution is interesting because the the lesson there that maybe goes against what you're saying is I genuinely did not feel threatened by this person. And the lesson that I ultimately took away with it without getting into too much detail was that if somebody really wants to hurt you, if you give them an opportunity, they're probably eventually going to find a way to do it. And, you know, in, in this case, the the person was, I mean, basically just crazy and, and I think had enough leeway and sort of intrinsic motivation to do it. But I'm not sure that actually applies with, say, journalists who have... I mean, part of it so- is important is like... I'm trying to live my life like without making enemies. Um, if somebody like really hates you, then yes, they will like try to dig through every tweet and everything you wrote. Um, like I try to avoid crazy people. I yeah. don't date crazy girls. Good <laughs> choice. I, like I date anyone, <laughs> but like, <laughs> not crazy people. <laughs> and yeah. I like personally don't like go after people uh online there's like one person kind of in our in-group who blocked me and i think uh-huh. it's 100 the correct decision for her and for me yeah because we were getting kind of antagonistic and i was like yeah there's, there's no reason for it thank you for blocking me <laughs> now like we probably wouldn't have like become like enemies but i'm like why take the risk just block jacob that's fine <laughs> yeah well i mean you know another yeah. another Another reason that's more social than than defensive, I think, for not tire- talking about certain things or only talking about them in absurd or indirect ways is that, you know, a lot of the time people will come and comment and and the comments, if you're very object level, will just end up being really tiresome. And, you know, I've got, I think, a pretty diverse audience and I just don't like it when people come and and say something that's like grossly offensive to everybody. So, I mean, you know, a a lot of hot button stuff is like, I mean, trans issues are, are huge, for example. And I, I think that these are genuinely complicated things. And I think it's almost better to spend my energy. Not, not that I'm that deliberate about it. Mostly I just do whatever seems like it's going to be fun and interesting at any point in time. Like, tweeting about the possibility say of um, Prince William transitioning and how that will affect his, his rights to succession. But well, most of the stuff that can like get you canceled, is also like really fucking boring. Right. Like this summer, a lot of people were possessed by the strong desire to like quote statistics about crime and race in the United oh, States. Oh God. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> why would you do that? Like you think anybody who would be like interested in it hasn't already seen this a thousand times. Yeah. So I have like, okay, there's the thing that my first inclination is to post. And I'm like, no, that's dumb. A thousand people already posted this. And then I don't post the second thing or the third. And then like a week later, I post something like, 
the narrative can stay retarded longer than you can stay socially solvent. <laughs> yeah, right. They're like, what does he even mean? And I'm like, no, no, this is the result of like a week of not posting my object level thoughts. <laughs> yeah. That's happening. So, I mean, so, okay. So not to rehash something that's completely dead, but maybe, maybe worth picking out a little bit is, is James Damore. I mean, I think in some ways he, I mean, like in his case, it seemed like he was probably adhering to something close and, you know, you can disagree for sure, but, but adhering to something like a rationalist approach to picking at this problem. And he also was going against the advice that you were just giving where it's like, you know, if the discourse can stay retarded longer than you can stay socially solvent. And, you know, he found that out really quickly. So, I mean, how, how would you balance those things? It, it seems like maybe we, you know, just don't drop it in a place like the place that you work, especially when that place happens to be Google and don't mistake a, an invitation to, you know, open discourse as actually being a, an invitation to open discourse. Yeah. But I don't know. What do you think? Like his crime was like misreading Google, both like, you know, the fact that there was going to be like some people who want to start shit. I mean, right. Like, his memo was kind of floating around for a month. No one paid attention. And then like a month later, somebody decided to make a big deal of it and leaked it. And then everything started. Um, but I don't know. I guess like if you had asked the more before he even wrote it, like, okay, imagine this stuff gets leaked. Um, now you're like the CEO of Google. You're the chairman of the board. All you care about is the share price. What do you think Google does here? And the answer is like, they fire your ass. And also... Like, I got a sense from reading his memo that, like, he didn't, like, really like women. Yeah, I, like, I actually haven't read it. Like, horrible slander, and, like, he can provide citations for things. But if you don't come to this stuff with kindness, people can really tell. Like, there, there are issues that I feel I have very little kindness, and I just try to avoid them. Because I'm like, I don't want to write anything... Unless I'm like going after something like the New York Times. But if it's like some group or some like individual person or something that happened, like if you pretend to like be kind or objective, but really you're kind of resentful. Yeah, that comes through. Yeah, I, it comes through. I, I think that happens a lot with, well, say like people who are, say, citing crime stats, right? Like you sort of, I, I mean, I, and I want to be clear, like you look at, some cases like this and it's like all right they've it's it's a big missing mood ultimately um going back to that post by who the hell did that it was one of the gmu guys um brian kaplan i think was writing about missing moods could have been um, anyway oh was it cowan who was writing about missing moods it i mean really it could have been any of them but you know the idea of of like saying um oh say perhaps you know you're writing about immigration and instead of saying look it's terrible that you know say you're anti-immigration you might write a piece saying oh it's terrible that you know we can't just admit all of these people to the united states and we have to build this wall and you know all of this and it would be really good if we could do that and it's terrible that there are these downsides for other people but if we do this then x y and z will happen and it's ultimately going to be worse for everybody but you don't actually usually hear that in immigration conversations. A lot of the time it's more like, yeah, these people are, you know, they're, they're not sending their best, you know? And it, it does strike me that 
in a lot of political convert I mean, just in really almost any political conversations, this isn't just a problem with the right. There's not any expression of the fact that, yeah, okay, maybe this policy is good, but it's going to suck for some people. And that that's actually a loss and we should be treating them with charity. Yeah. And it also means that there are a lot of good policies that you really can't promote because some people support them for hateful reasons. Yeah. And you're just kind of stuck, right? You have to like be super obscure, just try to do something completely orthogonal to the discussion. <laughs> yeah. You don't want people jumping on your side that you don't really want on your side. So how how do you feel about Straussianism generally? Uh, first of all, I just want to say I recently listened to um, a Justin Murphy podcast with a guy named Michael something who is uh, teaching like an online class on Strauss. Really? So, okay. I really don't want to say that, like I know what Straussianism is, other than like I don't either. A few That's pages fine. from Persecution and the Art of Writing. Um, yeah, look, I mean, my goal, at least like with my public persona and stuff I write, is to make like a hundred good smart friends, and I want to write and tweet to them. Um, and like I'm happy people don't get my tweets, and it's fine. Um, I don't like, need ten thousand followers. Um, I mean, I guess like Strauss's idea was you kind of you have to protect philosophers from the the general body politic, and you have to protect the general body politic from philosophers. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And I don't have a lot of interest in like the general body politic. I'm very much a pacifist. Um, I'm not like, striving to have like a huge impact. Almost everything I write that's politic related, it's about an individual's attitude towards all of this stuff. Um, so yeah, if I'm talking to an individual, I'm going to be like, okay, let's talk about like you and the New York Times and why do you read it and why do you care? Instead of like analyzing the object level of what the New York Times writes about immigration. Um, and sometimes like one of the ways to do that is that you write in a Straussian way about <laughs> immigration. Yeah. Do you... So... That's that's interesting, and and I think a good point about rationalism. I how do you think that rationalism is leaving anything on the table in in terms of its you know you talk about the core that that really believes in the mission. Do you think that they're leaving things on the table by not engaging politically more? I, I know understand that's maybe a topic of conversation with EA, for example, and and something that's not actually there, there there's no like there's no firm line on it but do you, do you think it's live i'm not i'm not like super up to speed on all the conversations in ea but at least what i could have dipped into it in the last few years it's been very much a topic of live conversation especially after 2016 mm-hmm. um so like basically there are no like open trump supporters in ea like there weren't any in 2016 but then there was still like a very uncomfortable question of like, you know, between people who thought like, okay, we should donate to Hillary's campaign because look, malaria can wait a couple months. This is like a huge threat versus people who thought it was like utterly insane for EA to be known as the organization that donated to Hillary's campaign instead of malaria. Um, I do think, I don't know, there might be 
like at least like jumping into this sort of like politics, like on the level of Hillary versus Trump, I still think that's absolutely batshit. Um, I think there could be room to enter politics in, I don't know, like Andrew Yang, who I got a chance to meet with him in 2018 and I wrote a blog post about him. He's not like running for mayor in New York. And uh-huh. I have a friend who's actually basically trying to organize people to run for city council in New York. And he kind of has like a consulting company that supports them. Um, so I don't know, maybe like Rashni should like try to take over the, I don't know, the zoning board of Berkeley. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Or like get well, I, people into the New York city council. And I guess there is seasteading. I, I don't know how much that became popular with rationalists versus people who read the GMU blog, but that was out there. I, okay. One, and actually that, Something you just said was striking to me. So nobody involved in EA was an open Trump supporter. Were there were there any open Trump supporters in rationalism? Uh, there are. Also, the question how open they are. So funny story about that. Um, I uh, met this girl and we really liked each other. Um, she was also polyamorous. She had a boyfriend. Uh-huh. Then I met her boyfriend at an EA picnic in Central Park. And then uh, we had an argument about whether a Republican could be an effective altruist. And he oh, very wow. much defended the extreme position that like, no, of course not. The Republican could never be an effective altruist. And huh. uh, we had a discussion on that. And after the discussion, he vetoed me. He prohibited his girlfriend from ever going on a date with me again. Holy shit. <laughs> wow. And I... I mean that so that that's actually kind of striking to me. You know, you it it seems like there's a cultural element of rationalism that perhaps has moved to the left by evaporative cooling. I've heard rumors about this. And you know, I use evaporative cooling in the Eliezer Yakowski sense of, you know, like a group just sort of a, achieves a certain mass of, you know, belief in some direction or another and then suddenly it's not possible for like everybody who doesn't exactly agree with that leaves. Do you, w- would you say that there's been some of that in rationalism? And like, w- if so, yeah, that... Depends where, right? So like my group of friends in New York, let's say just the rationalist friends. Um, so probably like in 2016, uh, I don't know, 90% of them voted for Hillary. Uh-huh. But then also generally they're like pretty anti-woke. Uh-huh. Just out of like kind of wokeness being like a general insult to like free thought and free inquiry. Um, even though obviously it's like racially diverse and we have like 20 times <laughs> as many trans people <laughs> as the general population. Yeah, uh, yeah. In Berkeley, it's probably more leaning left politically, also maybe more activist. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like people I know, just to try to like avoid object level politics and not care too much about it. Um, yeah. And... And like I personally like try to cultivate this sort of persona where people know they can come to me, right? Like I feel like confiding to me at parties, like in the last four years. So I was like, man, I like voted for Trump. And usually the people who vote for Trump voted for like really strange, weird reasons. Oh, for and sure. With the influence of the CIA and like <laughs> yeah. Asian economics. Or like the chance of nuclear war, like really nothing that has to do anything with what anyone campaigned on. Right, right, yeah. Uh, but then like maybe, I don't know, they wouldn't like lead with it in the conversation. Yeah, I I mean, I think, I don't know, I, 
I val I think I value people being really weird and contrarian in ways like this. Just maybe not even because I think contrarianism is good in its own right, although I'm not entirely sure about that. I think there's an argument to be made for it. But just if you can be contrarian about just about anything that's at least a sign of some kind of a healthy ecosystem underneath, or if you can't be contrarian about certain things, it's a sign that your ecosystem is not healthy in some way. Yeah, I mean, There's my thing of- was, I wrote something a while ago that like the happiest people are the normies who have like a couple of weird contrarian friends just to keep them honest and keep their life exciting. Yeah. And I very much like play that role for a few people. Like I don't know, I have like friends in New York who are like very like straight laced progressives, uh, rainbow flags and all. And you know, I just like drop some like bits and pieces from like Slaster Codex or Curtis Yarvin. But then like I have friends <laughs> like, like I'm not a reactionary. I'm not pretty good. So I have friends who are like more weird and contrarian than I am. Yeah. And they're like keeping me honest and my life exciting. And kind of the more weird you are, it's costly. <laughs> You're going to have to pay a price. So like I appreciate their service. Yeah. So has has that been a role that's become harder for you to play over, I don't know, since, you know, the happening started? Uh, no, I think it's a great role. Um, like this summer, I've had people who reached out to me. Like when the protest started, um, I've had people just like reach out to me wanting to like meet up or just talk on the phone just because they said like, Jacob, I'm like working, let's say this like NGO, everyone's liberal and everyone just suddenly lost their mind on May 30th this year. And I want to talk to someone who I know is like not a racist who thinks all blacks are criminals. I just want to talk to someone sane. Um, So no, I mean, like it's a great niche to be in. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, that, I mean, that's that's interesting. I I would say for myself that, I mean, in, in some of the social circles that I've had, like thinking back to say some of my friends from college, it it's actually, I mean, a, a lot of them I just don't talk to anymore because I, you know, initially when I was in college, I often played that role and and just like to poke at arguments that they were making, and, I mean, around I think around 2016, early 2017, it just got to the point where you know, we couldn't talk about anything else. And I think it became a bit unbearable for me to be around those conversations. And they became pretty hostile toward me, which is really disappointing. They they were very good friends. And if you haven't had experiences like that, well, I mean, I guess there's the case of, of that boyfriend of the, the girl that you were dating. So, okay. That's, that's one strong case, but so it seems he, like it, I mean, he wasn't even really, what he, He's like a very smart guy and dedicated DA who just has his own convictions. I think with a lot of people, like maybe, I don't know if it relates to your college friend, but definitely like something that I saw a lot, like this summer. Um, I feel there are a lot of people that it's not so much that they fully swallow this ideology is like, they're just scared that, for example, they're not woke enough. Yeah. And like, they have to like scramble to just like signal hard. But because they're like not really convinced they like are always worried that somebody will like see through their pretense that they're like not good enough of an ally uh-huh. and so obviously like, the thing they're most scared of is like accidentally talking to someone who will like poison their mind the other way they're like that oh sure yeah don't you get i'm not trying to keep my fucking job here i don't have time to <laughs> experience 
And like all those people, I just try to like when things heat up, like around election time or this summer, I'm like, I don't want to talk to them at all. I want to wait until they like feel safe and comfortable. And then we can chat about stuff. There's really nothing good that's going to come out of... Like, they don't need to be challenged. They're just scared. Yeah. And I'm not going to comfort them. I, I don't know how to do that. Um, we should, like, talk about puppies or reconvene in six months. Yeah. that's I, I really like that outlook. I, I think maybe it's just not acknowledged how terrified every not everybody, but a lot of people have been for, I mean, especially all of the last year, it's, it's been completely wild. And I mean, fear as a motivating factor for the set of beliefs you choose to express is maybe under attended. Yeah. And partly like I'm sort of in a very privileged position, right? Um, I have enough friends who like believe in me and kind of share my sensibility. I work for a private company that's like completely politically apathetic. Uh, has like no discussions of any of the stuff and doesn't care what anyone. Oh, blessed. Um, and I have my wife who loves me and is also like politically pacifist and like nothing that I tell her in the political sphere would like shock her uh, or made her like clutch her pearls. So, but yeah, a lot of people are in situations like you know maybe all their friend group is one way, maybe like their job is one way, and uh, so. Like they do have more reason to be scared of this and they shouldn't be talking to idiots like me. <laughs> cool. So um, I'll give you a chance at the end to just, I mean, any, anything that we should have gone through that that we haven't, um, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about it. But one other item that I thought I might as well bring up is what, what do you think about the relationship between people who no longer ra- identify as rationalists proper, but say post rats or meta rats or, you know, whatever absurd thing people are, are identifying right now as some kind of an identity or anti-identity as I think might be appropriate in some of these cases. What, what do you see about, what do you think about the interaction of, of these different groups and sort of the, I don't know, social role that we play with respect to each other. And then maybe with respect to broader society. Like the post-rat tribe? Yeah. And like, especially as it relates to, to the rationalists. So I don't even know how much they really relate to the rationalists. Um, I don't know. You're maybe like, you're more, you're chosen person of the in-group, right? <laughs> yeah. Person I'm not of, sure yeah. how that happened, but yeah. Yeah. I had, some, I had some pun about it. Forgot which one it was. Um <laughs> Like part of what's strange is that it's, it's the sort of tribe that really doesn't have kind of like anything outside that relates to it. Like if you're a tribe with like some mission to do something, you have that mission. And maybe your group on Twitter is just people obsessed with like crypto and decentralized finance. So, okay, at maybe. least it's an external thing, like the price of Bitcoin that is like an external thing you're anchored to and you talk about. Uh-huh. And then it's kind of post-red, meta-red tribe. It's like, it's like obviously a lot of like very smart, talented people. And some of them are like doing really impressive things. Like, I don't know, this concert I was talking about, he's running like three, four companies in his spare time from Call of Duty. And then like some of them are doing absolutely nothing. 
working like yep. two hours a day at some bullshit job and then like watching TV. Um, I think like rationalists have more of a sense that, okay, we should be doing something with this. You can't be just a poster or at least it's not like high status to be just a poster. Uh-huh. Like it, it's not like it has to be like, you know, protecting the world from the unfriendly AI of the future, but like at least something. Got to show some receipts in the real world. And it's really like you have this tribe of super smart people who are having a lot of fun, who are like saying smart things and having really interesting conversations. Um, but then I'm like allergic to tying it to any object level outcome of any sort. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. And I think my response to that, which is correct, ultimately, I, I mean, some of us are, you know, going in, I mean, like disconcert is disconcert is wild. He's incredibly sharp and very active and in, in his private life and in the commercial sector. But I think the exercise that we're maybe most engaged in right now is something like what Scott was doing in some of those posts with framing. And I, I see us trying to, you know, advertently or not. And mostly I think that the goal is to have fun, but I see a lot of what our work as being is, is trying to come up with some kind of a frame just to add, just to create some kind of sense to what is happening in the world all the time. And, you know, if you, if you take that perspective, I think you could almost see some of Scott's best work as fundamentally post-rationalist in the sense that it's generating a narrative structure. It's taking, taking a bunch of information and creating axes that, that kind of divide it into a system that that's more um, coherent or manageable, or that just lets you interact with it either in your day to day or at a high abstract level in, in, in such a way that it's um, just, it, it lets you get a grip on it. Yeah, and maybe I'm just criticizing myself, right? Because the most impressive thing I'm doing is my blog, which is really, you know, I spend all day on Twitter reading post rats and then I try to write up some sense-making every other week. Yeah. Right? I'm not, like, running companies or flying to Mars or... <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, welcome to post-rationalism. No, no but... I, I, very much, right? In terms of, like, ideas and sense-making, I am, like... You know, if you ask, like, what's my story about, like, a variety of things, I'll probably be pretty, like, in the central cluster of post-rats on a lot of them. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I think it's it's a kind of value that's not necessarily conventional, but maybe it's something that's particularly valuable. I mean, I, I would go and argue that forming narrative is maybe the most important thing that one can do in a society and it's something that animates people as individuals and something that animates these large superhuman, you know, entities. And if you don't have a functional narrative, it's very difficult for everything downstream of that, which I think is probably just about everything to continue to function and operate in any kind of way that permits material, you know, any, any kind of material well-being, But well, so now then you have a question of, okay, how much do we try to keep this a closed club? And how much do we try to spread the word? I mean, part of why I thought it wouldn't be so bad if the New York Times wrote a post about us 
especially with the central motivator for it being, look, those people got COVID right and early, is, okay, we might not like turn a lot of people into rats, but we might like make our voices heard. Yeah. So, right, if like post-rats have like great ideas and models of the world, um, how much should you be trying to spread them to other people, which might involve, for example, I don't know, having a journalist interview you versus yeah. keeping it on Twitter where you're like, you're changing subject every week because people get bored and you're using weird language and nobody feels like explaining anything to outsiders. And so the group slowly grows, but I mean, we've been doing it for a while. It's not like such a giant group. It feels pretty big at this point. I'm, you know, partly that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm not trying to do it in a, in a very direct sense since I, I think that would actually be a weakness from my perspective, but I think I could view, I guess I view it as sort of a slowly growing walled garden and maybe not even walled, but hidden garden, something like that, where it's less a matter of putting something on broadcast and, you know, getting it out to as many people as possible, but rather living life and talking about the world in such a way that other people are, are enticed to do that. And I think, you know, possibly, and, and I think the other thing that, that is true is that a lot of us are a bit pessimistic about the possibility of, of kind of a broad spread adoption of, of something like this. And I, you know, it would take more time than, than we have this evening to really go through it. But I think ultimately, a lot of a lot of ideas that are pretty good if you try and propagate them you know on mass ultimately get pretty aggressively reduced to something that's pretty dumb like you know a lot of a lot of ideas about race in the united states in the way that you know um people of given races interact with the rest of society are are actually pretty good and completely unobjectionable to me and you know, if you try and make them popular and spread them as quickly as possible, what you end up with is some kind of a three-word slogan that's very reductive, and I mean, a lot of the time flies in the face of what you are actually trying to argue. So the the problem of trying and and you mentioned that with rationalism, where it's like, all right, realistically, this is not something that's going to be taken up and mastered by large swaths swaths of the population as they exist right now. So, you know, well, I, here's an example. No, so. Like this summer, when the thing with Scott blew up on that like Tuesday in June, on whenever it happened, um, we, and by we, it's kind of like broadly, like anybody who like follows a rationalist on Twitter or who follows Scott kind of came up with this narrative that like, oh, the real story is that the New York Times is doxing bloggers. And that story was like printed in papers around the world in 24 hours. So we were like big enough that we just coordinated this is the narrative and some like heavy hitters like Balaji jumped in and then like a bunch of journalists for other outlets, they actually read Scott and they read rationalists. So they like started writing this stuff. I forgot even what outlets published it. And so like we created the story that the New York Times is docs and bloggers that was like published in magazines in Slovakia instantly like before like the new york times tech editor even woke up um, that was a master stroke and you see stuff i don't know like some dude was posting for a few months you know this guy jeff amazon in september 
went on a weird subreddit and said, hey, there's 137% short interest on GameStop and a lot of call options purchased for January and blah, 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 blah. And now fucking GameStop happened. Right. So it's not like we're trying to establish a university and like spread their gospel, but uh, like, I don't know, meme, memes kind of spread. I mean, I'm, I'm curious about yeah. you personally. Like my sense from a lot of what you write is that you kind of like live pretty defensively and like try not to be very legible. And even as you like keep accruing thousands of followers, you like almost like try to write things on purpose that would only be known to the in-group. Um, mm-hmm. But then you started the podcast. Yeah. So I'm like curious what, what kind of made you feel, I don't know, did you feel like you have an obligation now? Um, I was, so I was initially, in, no, so I was initially inspired to do this mostly I was listening to Vecna's Goon Squad and I was listening to Goblin Odds talking with Acid and his co-host um, and and just kind of shooting the breeze about whatever was coming to mind with them. And I really enjoyed that. It was great hearing people just talk about what was happening in their lives, what it was, you know, in their case to, to be in college or to be growing up slowly. And my... My core motivation, I think, was partly just being able to bother people to talk to me, which I enjoy doing a lot. I've enjoyed this immensely, for example, and also try to, and this sounds cliched, but create a stronger sense of community than I think we necessarily have on Twitter, which tends to be a pretty effervescent medium. You know, we we have all of these posts and people remember the good ones, bring them up from time to time, but it's not particularly organized. It's, you know, very diffuse and all of these sort of cultural learnings tend to be, um, pretty easy to miss. So in a sense, I am sort of doing what you're saying, which is, you know, trying to build up some greater degree of coherence and be a little bit less illegible. And I, you know, for example, here talking to you, I think I've dropped more object level views either directly or through questions than that I might have an entire evening on Twitter, but that's maybe the extent of it. And I don't necessarily have aspirations beyond that, beyond trying to, I don't know, engender some greater sense of community and, and just kind of commonality. And, you know, you look at the case of Scott, I think when the New York times was coming for him, perhaps it he was actually able to draw on a great degree of strength of that nature where there were a lot of people who knew who he was, who, you know, were just ready to go to the wall for him, frankly. And I'm not doing this in a defensive sense (laughs) where I'm just hoping that when, when people finally come to cancel me, that, that I'm going to have people watching my back. And in fact, um, I don't expect that and will loudly protest if anyone, you know, jumps in front of a point. Like maybe now yeah. you mentioned in the podcast that you live in Seattle. So maybe now next time, like I think maybe the most important tweet I posted this year was a photo of me uh, having Thanksgiving with Lisa Tomic's family. And I'm like, I oh. didn't know what Lisa was until like in late August, we started chatting on Twitter and three months later, I'm driving cross country and like hanging out with her kids on Thanksgiving. And I'm like, we can use Twitter like that. Yeah. So now people and know I- you're the king of the in-group. You live somewhere in the Seattle area. People might want to hang yeah. out. They and they do. And I mean, before before COVID, I've we actually had a fair number of parties here, and they were all wonderful. And 
I mean, the the best thing about Twitter for me, apart from you know having an outlet where I can just say whatever I want at any point in time, has just been meeting people and seeing those people meet each other. I, I had some strange realization where two people that two of my mutuals like just were having conversations that I wasn't involved in, and you know, of course they were, but it really struck me as as this kind of totally organic thing where like you know, I was bringing people together directly or not, or Twitter was bringing them together or people were coming together and just becoming friends and, and having some kind of a de-atomized life, which maybe feels like a pretty big risk right now of, of lots of people not knowing anybody else, not being able to stick together, not being able to form some kind of a, you know, coherent, uh, going back to this word, which I think has been totally overused, but, and by, by, you know, say, political groups, but but a community of people who just know who each other are and, and are looking out for each other and maybe telling some good stories in the process. I mean, so I feel, first of all, a lot of people probably have lost most of their friends now, um, kind of just because of COVID. Like, I know a lot of people who, I don't know, I just like text them and then I hear that they like haven't left their house or spoken to any of their friends for months. So a lot of like standing parties and meetups and clubs probably aren't happening or friend groups or people move to different cities. And then also, I mean, honestly, like my favorite mutuals on Twitter, I like them more than a lot of the friends I used to have. And I actually like made a lot of Twitter friends. Like people who read my blog or followed me on Twitter who then somehow passed through Brooklyn and hung out. Or yeah. just room. So I actually think that because of COVID, now it's kind of the time for people to form new friend groups. And like what better way than to form them with your Twitter in-group? Which yeah. Are, and like I think like most of my Facebook are people I just randomly was like in business school with. And we have so little mm-hmm. in common. And then people I was meeting with New York, some of them are good friends of mine. And some of them just kind of like randomly ended up in some party together and then end up going to that meetup. But like my Twitter mutuals are people that like our souls vibe with each other. Yeah. They like like what's in my head and how I think and how I write and I like theirs. That's it's like a much more promising foundation for a friendship. Are you one one thing that I should have mentioned earlier and it didn't occur to me, but you talk about influencing the world in some way. And I think my model is either, you know, 18th century French salons or or perhaps Samuel Johnson's club in England around the same same era where it was just a bunch of people who had that kind of soul vibe who got together. And I'm not sure if they originally had any particular intent. Rather, it was just a matter of getting a lot of people together who who had some kind of a common energy. And these are terrible, not particularly rational and, and quite mushy words, but I think they reflect something real. And you know, you, you had these very immensely powerful scenes that that developed and i think ultimately did change the world in some pretty dramatic ways and you know that's not my intent but if there's some mechanism by which we actually had influence i expect it would be something like that yeah yeah i do think that those things probably need people committing up in real space yeah um and that's also a benefit, you know, a little bit of like growing the group, right? Like when, if you have like 2,000 people in the in-group, it means there's like enough of them in Brooklyn, enough of them in Seattle. And then yeah. like meet and drink together. And then the best outputs of the conversations end up in Twitter in some form. Mm-hmm. And not pollinate the other ones. 
Yeah. So I, I think there's a lot of potential there. And if you've made it this far into the podcast, please start making plans with people in your own cities. Just go hang out. No agenda. Have fun. Make friends. And, uh, you know, see what happens from there. Yeah. This is what we're here for. Yeah. All right. Hey, we're at an hour, 15 minutes, and I think that's a really good note to end on. So Jacob, thanks so much for coming on, man. This, this has been a delight and I've, I've really enjoyed the chance to get to talk with you. I mean, not in person, but at least in real time. Sure. It's been a pleasure. Um, best of luck to you and moon. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for you. Yeah. We, we may need it. All right. Take care, man.